Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Bengalis and New York show. My name is Arik and uh, we were repping it for, you know, the Bronx, Manhattan, Brooklyn, Queens, Staten Island, and all over the world. So welcome and enjoy. All right. So you mentioned that you grew up in Jamaica? Yes. How did that shape your perception of how Bengalis are represented in politics and like local policymaking? Because you mentioned your mom is a prominent figure and she worked to serve the community. Was that the only representative figure of a Bengali person in politics that you had? Or did you feel that Bengali people weren't represented enough? Well, so they are and they aren't. I mean, the thing is, because of her like position, a lot of local politicians, I mean, I'm in my area in Queens, like the guy that AOC beat, uh, Joseph Crowley, we knew him. Like him and others, uh, you know, who are our representatives or had been our representatives for almost my entire life, constantly, you know, basically wanted my mom to either endorse them or be allowed speaking minutes at any of her events and functions. She was basically the, pre- the president of an organization called Drama Circle founded. It was a theater, you know, Natok play thing. And mm-hmm. it still exists. And she still has a lot of, even though she stepped down as president, she still has a lot of like leverage in their activities and things. Prior to that, she was a founding member of a lot of the other organizations that have took shape in like the late 80s, early 90s. Bangladesh Society of New York, she was president of and that was an elected position i think she got elected into that position when i was pretty grown at that point i might have already been 20 but she'd been a sitting member of many of these organizations organizations and i think also if you are familiar with fobana like her organization was the steering committee of that last year but prior to that she was always very involved she was just like mm-hmm. i think um her she was a full-time like travel agent when i was growing up i saw her very little, to be honest. Uh, and uh, But the thing is, I had like a lot of extended family that lived with us in Jamaica. So we grew up, when I grew up, um, my earlier years, it was in this apartment building. Um, if you know where Hillside Ave is and 169, like right below Hillside, there's this apartment building that had a two-bedroom apartment, which is on the first floor. That's where I lived with my mom, my dad, my dad's mom, um, two of his brothers, two of his sisters, and that's not all his siblings. Um, but yeah, we were, I was always looked after. I, you know, also had, uh, it was an entirely Latino building. So before everyone moved here, I was also being babysat by, <laughs> you know, the upstairs neighbor who was Colombian and her spouse, you know, partner was Puerto Rican. And like all the building's kids got watched by this woman. So that was just our normal, you know? Um, and eventually, uh, we did have one other family that wasn't Latino in our, you know, um, building. And that family happened to be Bengali. <laughs> and uh, that was like my friend, Farzine, who was two years older than me, but people thought we were sisters, literally just because we're both Bengali or both South Asian. They just were under that assumption. And I would let it rock. She would always correct everyone like, no, that's not my sister. I'd be like, no, yes, that is my sister. Um, so, because she was cool. And she like played all those sports balls things and I don't believe I have no sports <laughs> sports <laughs> balls things sports balls things that's what I'm going to call all sports 
you know, sports ball stuff. That's, I don't rock with that, but she was all about that. And I got to be around all her coolness and that was fun for me. Um, and my mom and also her family, like they were just really tight. Uh, yeah. So my mom, right. She was part of, you know, this program, this news program that was on public access channel. It was like channel 25 or 13 or whatever. It was basically the first Bengali language news program on television. In, in what, was what was it called? What was it called? Rukoshi Bangla. Oh, I used to watch that when I was a kid. Wow. It was so difficult to find it because I remember it was like on some weird channel. Yeah. That's why I was confused. Was it 25 or was it 13 or yeah, what was it? Was it was very weird. Yeah. So yeah. Anisha, there was no, you know, Anisha, you know how they now they have ATN Bangla. I don't know if your parents watch it and MTV, anything like that. But when, when I was a kid, there was nothing. There's none of those things. There's no satellite Bengali television. There's literally right. like this one channel. There was a, a show that you could watch called Rupashi Bangla. And like, we should like catch one. I used to have to try to find it for my parents. And it was so difficult because it's like on some weird public access channel. And But once we found it, it was like really exciting because it was like the only Bangla TV that we had. Access. Yeah, it was once. It's a weekly program. So every Saturday was when it would air. But we would yeah. go, me, my mom and dad would go earlier in the week, I think the night before, to um, the person who whose program that was, Ani Sanko. And his... Uh, they would basically tape the episode uh, or her, her segment of it, which was being the lead anchor person. She would just like sit with, you know, with her, um, what she was going to say on a paper in front of her and reading the news. And then he would cut away in his post editing process to like, you know, video footage of whatever news was there, but she was always the opening of the show and the end of the show. Um, and sometimes she would do on-air interviews with special guests and things of that nature so yeah, that was the extent of in the beginning of her involvement in things, but they grew from there and she just like was a recognizable figure from not just that, but definitely from all the other organizations that she was, you know, either part of the founding committee of or some, somehow, some way, the uh, Bangla school, which was like the only Bangla school at the time, which wasn't in someone's house at one point. But it was like a rented space more so. And then they stopped wanting to budget that. And then my mom's idea was, so when we eventually moved into a house, which was not that far from where I grew up, it was actually just up the hill and three blocks over. <laughs> but so it looked like a way more residential area than where I had grown up. Um, it was, you know, houses across the street, houses to the left and to the right of you. And um, we were the first, I think, Bengali family that actually owned a home in that whole Highland Avenue area. Now Highland yeah. Avenue is super Bengali. Um, yeah, I was going to say that because I think for new people that moved to Jamaica uh, and Hillside are, would probably be shocked to know that it wasn't, because now it's little Bangladesh and people oh, would yeah. be shocked. Oh, straight people up Taka, be, yeah. People, people would be shocked to know that it was very little Bengalis back then and also shocked to know that it was a high crime rate uh, area and now yeah. it's actually really, really safe, right? And you mentioned, I think earlier or in one of your interviews, you mentioned bullying earlier, but now it's such a safe neighborhood. It's so hard to imagine now, right? Well, we were, we were a little bit outnumbered, you know? Yeah. Um, so when I went to elementary school, PS131, which has an entirely Bengali student body now, but it wasn't the case when I went there. Like I knew Farzine, who was two years older than me, she wasn't bullied. Like, I think she was actually like one of the few Bengalis I saw not having an awkward face for some reason. But like any other Bengalis in my grade were, you know, mostly uh, having very awkward phases, you know. Um, and, but I, it was such a diverse also community. It was like, there was 
not just, I mean, people assume because it's Jamaica, it was like, was everyone else black? There was definitely a significant amount of black students and Latino students, but there was a lot of other like Asian types of Asian students. And um, I would say the white kids that were in our school were like Mediterranean white kids. Like they were usually Greek because there's like a a Greek community next to um, Jamaica Hills. It's like they have this huge Greek church there. So a lot of the white kids that were in my grade at least were, were Greek descent or Armenian descent but they were just white presenting, you know? So yeah, I, I got, you know, some, some of, some of the things about uh, Bengali and Indian kids that, you know, were like the proto, like the stereotypical things that they get made fun of about, you know, like smelly clothes, <laughs> uh, smelling like curry, those kind of jokes definitely came my way. But I think more so for me, I got bullied not on my ethnicity, but on being a girl who had a early puberty or not so that was that was torment for me having that attention like I told you I really am not someone who like needs attention which is weird for people to understand as being a Leo they think that's like you that's the one thing you want out of life I'm like I'm a Leo but I have a cancer rising and a Libra moon so not so much um (laughs) Um, and also like I said my experiences with seeing and, and witnessing my mom's you know ascent to uh, public life and all that stuff kind of gave me a, a, this like uh, weird anxiety around it. And so, yeah, attention wasn't something I was very fond of, um, especially negative attention. And that was very negative attention. Yeah. So, but I would say, I, I think I got along with people right like in, in my school that were all kinds of, you know, ethnic, and socioeconomic backgrounds. And it was all pretty well represented in my school at that time. And my junior high school was when I started to get more, I guess, to my family rebellious. I don't know. I didn't really see myself as rebellious. But yeah, so there was, I think I just kind of had like a disenchantment with school in sixth grade in particular. My teacher was a big hater. And even though I was academically strong, as far as my test scores and things like that, she just would really pick on me a lot and just really broke my heart. I think when, when I found that from like a one parent teacher conference where she said some not great things about me, like just it's all it took for my mom to like yell at me, you know? And I'm like, yo, I'm, why aren't you not letting me tell you what it really is instead of taking Mrs. Weinstein's, you know, word as, as, as valid. And, um, you know, I just, I think at that point I was like, I'm going to, you know, what I'm going to do is probably stop trying. <laughs> and um, I didn't consciously do it. I just think I subconsciously had the, had this like idea of like, okay, well, first of all, Bengali kids are prospering as far as <laughs> academics in this school. Like I don't feel the burden is on me <laughs> to be like another smart Bengali kid. Um, but, uh, and I also felt like sometimes these teachers, it's just like, if, if they're still going to like, come at you for speaking up or being who you are. Because I will say, I don't know what she really hated about me, but she was Jewish and I am Muslim, you know, and Mm. she was super pro-Israel and everyone kind of knew that about her. And I was too young to really understand what that even meant yet, you know, because I knew Jewish kids in school that were cool, cool as hell. And my mom's boss at the travel agency where she worked was a Jewish woman who was traveling to Israel every year. And all of my mom's clients were basically people traveling to Israel all the time. And I didn't feel 
or have a consciousness yet about my being Muslim being a problem for other people yet, you know? If Ms. Weinstein were to know that right now, if I Google U.S. hijab, you're the first person that comes <laughs> up. And if I Google American flag hijab, you're the first person that comes up. So the joke's on her. Right. <laughs> and I'm yeah. sure if I, if I Google other things like that, you're probably be the first one. That's, that's, Honestly, I don't, yeah, it's, that's so cool. But yeah, I, I, you know what you were saying earlier. It's so cool, but it's, it's also kind of scary. Like you're because you know why it's scary? Because now there's too many idiots that are empowered to say whatever they want. And yeah. I've seen really disgusting comments left on some of my interviews by people. You know, obviously, like I was saying, there's a lot of bigoted people who, and, and you know, tweeting insane things. And I don't know how I would act if that was how I would be able to stay kind of sane in the midst of that if, if this was a way bigger thing, you know? I think the level where it's at is as much as I can handle, <laughs> to be honest. And also, like I said, there's another spectrum of people who had an issue with this image. And that comes from the Muslim community, as a matter of fact, from some people in the Muslim community, not all, but like, for the most part, I will say I love that there are people that are proud of this image but that doesn't mean I'm not going to be affected or dismissive of other valid um, feelings that were had about the image as far as like making a, a like an oriental sort of, you know, the white gaze of uh, on Islam and stuff like that. Like I kind of have to say sometimes I see that side of it too. I don't really know how to speak on their specific concerns but you know someone who's a popular blogger was like shepherd fairy you know there's lots of things people have to say about shepherd fairy and him being a white man and putting this image out and not you know it not coming from the muslim community but i wanted to i wanted her to know and contact her like this actually comes from the muslim community but it was then used as this art campaign and happened to be shepherd fairy who was the person that did his derivative uh, work of that image but before I even got to contact her, she had another rebuttal post, but basically because people had already told her in her comments, like, hey, um, actually the photographer is Muslim and this young lady in the picture is Muslim. And they posted that Guardian article. That was the first article ever, you know, basically interviewing me. And then she kind of came at me. She kind of like in her next post was like, wait, so now you're going to tell me the girl who, who's in this picture doesn't even cover her hair. How does no one see how problematic that is? And basically all, all I'm going to say is I don't perform Islam. Like Islam is in my heart and it's part of, it's just who I am. Like I'm not someone who has to like put on something to prove to anyone I'm Muslim. You know what I mean? And also I think a lot of the women I know who happen to cover or don't cover just like they don't really give too much of that as the connection to Islam. Even if you do cover yeah. your hair, like mm -hmm. and there's a lot of women who made the choice to do that without thinking this makes me a better Muslim. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, where it's so, it's so true. I, and I, I said this earlier and I, I'm glad you stand up for yourself like that because it's so important to show that it's such a diverse spectrum. It's not, you know, and you can still be, you can still be a Muslim and not have to wear a hijab. Like it's it's so interesting. You get it from the Muslim community too. You know, you know. So no, you but know there my are many wife. people who would hear what you just said and be like, "That is completely wrong." And for you to say that, you're definitely going to go to hell. You know what I mean? To say you don't You're have to wear a hijab. Basically, I have heard that before. Yeah. yeah, it's from my Muslim community. Oh my god, because I used to wear hijab actually for a couple years, and all of a sudden, when I had taken it off for personal reasons. 
the same people who were praising me for wearing hijab came to me and said, oh, you're going to burn in hell. And I'm like, oh, where did this support go? You know what I mean? Like, we're supporting each other. And I just feel like a lot of negativity can be rooted in the Muslim community. And I feel like it's a really big issue. You're mentioning that, you know, speaking about this photograph. No, there's definitely, like, um, there's definitely, uh, I, I understand the debate about hijab. And I will say personally, I think as long as a, it's a woman's choice, yeah. regardless of what she believes is, is, maybe she does think it makes her a better Muslim than someone who doesn't. Whatever it is, as long as she chose that for herself, we have to stop policing women's bodies and not just the Muslim community, but entirely just South Asian communities are, uh, of, all, of all faiths do that. Um, and, and also not South Asians, just people in general need to stop policing women's bodies. And um, I think with uh, women like, you know, Nisha, you mentioned you used to wear hijab and don't now. I have a lot of friends who are in that same exact mm-hmm. sort of on that journey as well, who also were people who wore hijab and then for their own reasons um, decided it was no longer something that fit them and, and, you know, fit their spirit. So, you know, and these women are still Muslim as ever. They're still, they're, it's like, they're not at some, like they didn't come across like something that said Muslim, it being Muslim is wrong or being hijabi is wrong. Right. They just decided, you know, something came across me that made me realize I don't think this is something that suits me the same way that it did when I did decide to do this, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, what, was your, what was your family's response to the attention you were receiving from the picture? Um, what was their response? Um, for my dad, I will say he just, uh, <laughs> he had a field day. He just started making it like his phone background, <laughs> his watch, oh, his cool. Apple that's watch cool. background. And he will literally go up to people all the time still. I love and be like, you know who she is, right? My dad is, is, is just a character and he's, he's actually a child. Um, <laughs> we love him. He like, you know, Alhamdulillah, he just turned 71, which was a big, like last year when he turned 70 and I, I put that on my thing and everyone, my mom was like, don't tell anyone. And I was like, why? Um, he's 70, wow. but he, he acts and looks much younger. And um, if, you know, if you've met him or if you remember meeting him, he's just like someone you don't really forget. Did he come to my wedding? He did. Yeah. And he was probably on your dance floor. Um, so that's sure my that's my that's my claim to fame, Nisha. Munira came to my wedding, <laughs> which I didn't know. I literally found out yesterday. It was literally like four hundred. Shout it from the rooftop. There were so many people at your wedding, and it was beautiful. <laughs> and I and, told uh, you also. I thought it was great that the Haiti um, made a donation on behalf of guests to the Smile campaign, right? Operation Smile was that it? Yeah, yeah. Operation Smile it was cool. Yeah, I, I, she came up with that idea. And, and I, on that on that note, my wife, you know, you're talking about uh, policing women's. Um, bodies. Another thing that I, that I think is really important is policing women's choices. So, you know, one thing that we recently um, did was we went to China. My wife, you know, worked a year in China, like we talked about, and she always got this uh, response from the, a lot of people in the Muslim community, like, you know, did your husband okay that? And I always found that so interesting because, oh I mean, God. obviously, we're, I'm, I'm going to be, you know, my support probably means you know, a lot to her, but you know, allowing her to do something like that. Like the word allow, like that's just kind of, it frustrated both of us because she oh doesn't need goodness. my 
She doesn't need my permission. Obviously, she wants my support, but, you know, permission and support are, you know, two different things. Totally. No, and then being someone who came from a household where the woman is definitely the one calling all the shots, like my mom is absolutely my dad's caretaker and permission giver and <laughs> allowance yeah. giver. That's like what my normal is. And then you know, yeah. people are surprised by that and thinking, oh, whenever you got in trouble, what did your dad say? What did your, da- did your dad discipline you a lot? Like, was them hearing that I had, like, issues with my parents and just assuming they're picturing it's my dad. And I'm like, nah, that's my, that's my guy right there. What you mean? <laughs> you know, like, that's yeah. a little homie right there. That's, yeah. that, that's not my issue at all. And, you know, like, me and my mom both have very strong personalities and she's very, like, image conscious and, like, society conscious like that sort of thing and I think you know at some point it, she started to realize how toxic that is um, and that definitely came after I left home because I had to like peace out and I moved to Brooklyn and basically that you know distance sometimes is helpful in getting parents to see you know their part in that you know and it's sometimes not it's not even about like sometimes you know you having misunderstandings, but you need to grow as a person. That means not always being in a restrictive household, which I was until I was like 24, you know, like couldn't even, there was like very minimal social things that I was able to do. And even then I had to like kind of lie around to do, you know? So yeah, there was a lot happening in my head and, uh, I, I think uh, now, you know, what's funny is I do live back at home with the folks now and things are, there's craziness still. We're still all strong personalities. Like we are still who we are as people. But I mean, like that, that time of like not living at home for six years needed to happen for us to be at an okay place where my place where I was working, the company folded at the same time my lease was ending. And then me needing to move to somewhere, I would have not, if four years earlier, I would not have considered moving back home just because, you know, but then at that point, I had gotten in a much better place. My mom had been friendlier and more considerate of like me wanting to live the life that I want to live on my terms, even if I don't have it all figured out yet, even if I'm still not sure what I'm supposed to really be doing career-wise. Um, she knows like, this point, me forcing her forcing me to go to pharmacy school was something that started me out wrong completely in my college journey. You know, like, and if she could go back, if we could both go back, I would have fought for my, you know, thing harder, and she would have been more forgiving and lenient um, and let me do what I th- think I should have done at the time. And maybe I would have changed my major if, if broadcast journalism hadn't been what I ended up doing, but at least I wouldn't have been like in this predicament of going to, you know, a very expensive university over, over like, you know, paying for, for pharmacy, pharmacy school at St. John's. And if, especially knowing that that wasn't something I was going to stick with, you know, I think I knew, we all knew that all six years of that, there's no way I was wow. really bad at chemistry in high school and that's high school chemistry. You know what I mean? And most of pharmacy is um, you know, the, the courses are going to be very chemistry heavy. Like, what were you thinking, lady? Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah, and same thing um, is expensive as hell, too. That's a lot of money. Expensive as hell. Wow. And at the time, I understand why that's a good investment. Because at the time, yes. pharmacy graduates were coming out of school and having guaranteed job placement, yeah. you know? 
at the yeah. time there was a you know a somewhat of a still a demand for pharmacy um not to the extent of when there was for my dad because my dad came here on that visa for pharmacy graduates um he came in like the late 70s when there was such a huge shortage of pharmacists in this country so in their mind that is their ticket to a better life and so in my mom's mind she saw someone who's like as goofy as my dad was able to like secure us a better future just for being a pharmacy school graduate, you know, like, and to her, that's like, oh, it's this, this is an easy choice just to do pharmacy, you know? Yeah. Um, but you, you also grew up in that neighborhood in Hillside where there's like this all, there's like this pharmacy crew, right? It's like the whole bunch of families that whose children, um, you know, went into pharmacy. There's like this building where everybody's basically a pharmacist. I forget the name of the building. Are you, are you, are you talking about the embassy building? Yeah, the embassy building, exactly. Oh my God, how do you know about that? Where did you grow up? I need to ask you that. Well, I, well, I actually meet a lot of these people through this podcast. So I've had a lot of the embassy people like, like um, that, are, that have been in the podcast where I've just met over the years. I grew up in Brooklyn. I grew up in Kensington, but I... But I left there in 2005. But I know a lot of people that grew up in the embassy building and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, so oh my God. So the embassy yeah, so building Nisha, was yeah. the one other, like, kind of cluster of Bengalis. And I didn't yeah. live there. I lived in a t- totally different apartment building with all yeah, Latino yeah. families. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, yeah. sometimes we'd go by there to see a family. But, it was, like, I didn't know that yeah. world. And they, a lot of those kids also didn't just go to PS21. They went to PS86, which is um, right next to Hillcrest High School. But then, you know what happened is a lot of them, once they were, their parents were making better bread. They moved to Long Island. They moved to Long Island. And yeah. they didn't have like a high school experience in New York City or they didn't yeah. have a junior high experience in New York City. They had like a partial elementary school experience with PS86, you know. Uh, my mom never wanted to move to Long Island. That was one of the other things that kind of differentiated us, I guess, from those families is my mom being a working you know, independent woman in her mind, <laughs> you know, she was like, I want to always be able to take the train into the city and you can't do that if you live in Long Island. And she also didn't want to be a, a, a housewife. Like she was vehemently against that. And my dad being her biggest support and cheerleader, like was always letting her just do whatever she wanted. Like, like he was, oh yeah, she, he, no, he takes absolute pride in everything about her. Like at no point did he feel emasculated by her in her rise in the ranks of all of these organizations or her always being the one conducting all these meetings in a room entirely full of men, you know, like he, you know, that's the other thing. Like, I feel like I, that whole like stereotype of Bessie dads and Brown dads and stuff. I was like, Oh, okay. That's cool. I don't know what that is. <laughs> like, I don't know. Yeah, I know. I, I, I get exactly what you're saying. Cause I, cause I, well, there are, you know, we've done a lot of, Nisha, Nisha knows, we've done a lot of work around this. We've done a lot of writing and awareness around mm-hmm. some of the problems that do exist in the um, Bengali community around, you know, uh, gender roles. Mm-hmm. But there's still plenty of, you know, dads that aren't like that. Like most of my, most of my mom worked more than my dad did. And my mom's a hijabi, just like, you know, you were talking about. My mom's a hardcore hijabi. I've never, my mom's never left the house without a hijab. But she's also yeah. worked more more than my dad. She actually mm-hmm. did a lot. My dad got sick, so my dad, my mom actually worked. She, my mom was at, is and always was the head of the family, but she was a hijabi, you know. Mm-hmm. So they, they speak no, to I so many things. We, he spoke, speaks to so many things we were talking about. It was just like you can't assume that just because somebody's a hijabi that they're submissive and weak. Uh, you right. also can't assume that just because somebody's a Bengali male that they're, 
you know, controlling and, you know, an aggressive either. Like, they were just, like, so diverse. Or insecure about, like, women in their family making more money than them or having more of a status Exactly. I tell my wife all the time. I mean, she's a teacher, but I was like, if you make more money than me, I'll stay at home. I would love to be a house husband. I'd be amazing. (laughs) (laughs) That'd be super cool. Like, are you kidding me? Right now, I'm staying. I'm literally living with my in-laws. Like, I'm like, you know, there's a term called Garjamai. I'm literally a Garjamai. Garjamai. Yeah. So it means like house husband. That's basically what I'm doing right now. But I'm like, whatever. I mean, I don't care. I'm like that free food. No, and honestly, during this time, like there are no rules for what what's happening yeah. now in the world. No one has a playbook for. Just be yeah. sane of mind and try to be good to each other. You know, like yeah. try to be understanding and compassionate, which I've always been saying, like when I've done some of these interviews, like people are like, what do you think about this and that? I'm just like, people just need to have more compassion for each other. And stop having only like the, you know, this narrow visual of like, oh, you're Muslim. So you only care about Muslim issues. Like my activism has always been rooted in like the empowerment and uplifting of black and brown bodies in this country. Because, you know, this, this whole shit with like everything happening, of course, Black Lives Matter has more of a, has been more of a a catchphrase now than ever before. But, you know, Prior to them coming up with that phrasing and, you know, and I don't know how people find it problematic, by the way. I just think that's a closeted way of admitting you're racist, to be honest. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, so no, when, when all of these cases in New York, New York City happened with Amadou Diallo, you know, like we left our high school to protest the 41 shots of Amadou Diallo that killed him and he was trying to take his keys out of his pocket. And also, Abner Luima, who didn't, who was not a fatality in his situation, but was completely violated against his will by cops. You know, I think one of those cops had a black girlfriend and tried to say, "I'm not racist because I have a black girlfriend." Like this is the sort of stuff, like these aggressions towards black people, that have always struck me as something like I have to care about this. How just because I'm not black can I sit back and think this doesn't affect me? It absolutely affects me. Because white supremacy affects all of us and affects white people too. You're just as much of a victim because you're white of white supremacy. Because you actually sit there and think, you know, something about being white makes you better than us. That's just sad. You have to understand, like, you are a victim as well from your own, from this whole, like, you know, crazy mentality that has been perpetuated since prior to the birth of America, you know? So, yeah, I, and I, I think... People have always been like, I don't really know what to do with the person who's brown, but doesn't really speak as much about brown issues as they do about black issues, you know, like, but I don't really see that. I'm just like, this, this, this is a no brainer to me. Why can't you like understand that these are issues that are real. I need to have all people speaking on it, on it, not just black activists, you know, and especially, you know, especially white activists or white allies, whatever the word is now. Like, I don't really speak activism phrases that well. (laughs) It's just like, you know, there's so many more things like, and um, terminologies that are entering our vernacular now, and I can't keep up with all of it. I just know what's real is what I feel. And if there's a word for it, great. If there isn't, then also cool. Maybe someone will come up with one, you know? I hate to interrupt our conversation, but there is a short amount of time left. So, okay. To conclude, I would just love to ask you a piece of advice you would love to provide for me, because I'm a South Asian youth, but other South Asian youth as well, since, you know, you have 
dipped your feet into different areas of what you can do to help support brown issues and provide light for black and brown bodies, what is a piece of advice you would love to give for South Asian youth on how they can start being aware to these issues and what they can do? Ooh, okay, let me think. What is good advice? Um, I think the core of it is none of us are free until all of us are free, right? Mm. You have, there has to be um, intersectionality in your worldview. And obviously I know that America has a slew of issues. It's this, you know, there's a lot of evil that is sourced from American exceptionalism and things like that, but there's so much in the world happening any given time. And, and, you know, you can only, you can really understand what affects you the most. You don't have to have social justice as you're, you don't have to make that like so much as, you know, I have to be a social justice warrior because everyone's a social justice warrior right now. Like I am very concerned about the treatment of Muslim, um, Uyghur Muslims in China. And I think not enough people talk about the treatment of, you know, migrant Bengali workers in Saudi country, this country of Arab countries, Saudi Arabia being my first exposure to that. But I've also seen it in other Arab countries and I've never been to Dubai, but I've heard horror stories about the mistreatment of Bengali migrant workers in Dubai and uh, um, the United Arab Emirates. And, uh, you know, just like there's so many things at any given time you're going to find in the world that are completely off, you know, in terms of human rights. Um, But you personally, you, you can't like solve it all, but at least know that you have enough responsibility to make yourself and others aware of the things that you know you're you're passionate about you know um because a lot of us are i I mean i will say sometimes it comes across a little bit like crazy to me when people are like here's all these books that you have to watch i mean movies you have to watch books you have to read and um this will get you up to like some things will get you up to, up to speed, but the rest of it, I just feel like it's like, yeah, I mean, it's good to know these resources are available to you, but for this to make you have a care, like this is what's going to ignite in you the, the care. No, you have to already care. You have to already know that this, mm-hmm. there's things that affect you because they, you know, there's a consciousness in you like this affects my heart. This affects, you know, not just people that make up like, you know, friends of the, the racial background of my friends, you know, like some people are like, well, I didn't grow up knowing, um, a lot of black people. And that's why I don't really think I knew like, you don't have to know black people, you know, like that's the, I don't know how people sometimes sit here and like what they're trying to justify, but yeah, I I don't know. I, I think I, 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 I do say I, I care about all of the mistreatment, like of anyone, like anything that seems unfair is going to seem unfair. Right. But I don't really want to sit here and think like, I now need to make a Facebook post talking about every single like bad thing that's happened in the world. Like what happens is going to happen if no one speaks about it. Absolutely. And then making sure on your local level, you're doing whatever you can to make sure you're seeing more of the people who are the incumbent in certain offices of, you know, like, candidate positions, city council stuff, like those incumbents, 
if they want to keep their positions and their seats, they have to hear us out. They have to understand that there's a different world that we're living in that isn't the same as whenever you first held this seat 30 years ago. And if you want our support, and it doesn't matter if, you, if you're running against another person of color or not, if you want our support, and you know, I'm not going to automatically give my support to the person of color just because they're a person of color, because sometimes those people have a really, really toxic agenda as well. But you have to understand, like, we are not just constituents that are, you know, blind to any time you've been indifferent, you know, about mm-hmm. uh, injustice in the city or someone, you know, who people promote to me is a lot. And I'm just like, yo, you know, that person was all for Amazon being in Queens, right? Like, I'm going to notice those things. I want to make people aware and have, you know, my friends check, you know, like you should check that person and you should look up this and that. And, uh, you know, I am just saying like have a 360 for sure of your awareness of the things that are not right. And if you want to consume really good things happening in the world, find a time to do that too. turn all the other stuff off. There's a way to do that as well. But these anti-racist guides, I can understand what their purpose is, but that's not to say this is all, this is, there's like a, a guidebook to being an anti, like, you know. Yeah. As far as uh, advice in general to South Asians, just be who you are. Like, even if there are, like, let's say certain spaces where you want to see someone who's South Asian, Bengali, what have you, Muslim, or, you know, just anything, any kind of uh, what you find lacking. Even if you don't want to personally be that first, first person to break, you know, that color line and, and make it, if you at least promote and support the people that do want to be in that space. Make sure you're like kind of speaking up when you see that there's negativity around them, you know, like uncles or parents that are having, um, putting pushback on those people to not do what they really feel in their spirit they're meant to do. Don't just sit there and let that person keep, you know, fielding all these negative and disencouragement from the, their loved ones who I think, you know, they, I was one of those people. I was like, well, I don't really care. I don't really care, but I did care. I, I it did, it definitely affected me when my mom kept saying, um, you know, if you go to broadcast journalism for, you know, college, instead of pharmacy and you find out, like I've been telling you all along, you're not going to end up making it the entire media that I've never seen anyone brown. So that means something. That means people who tried didn't get to do it. So just spare yourself that disappointment. And, you know, it just made me feel a way like, okay, what if I do end up failing at this? Because, you know, then I have to say, oh, she was right. Like, but I wanted to keep thinking, you know, and, and, Everyone wanted to basically say, oh, well, as long as you have that um, in your fighting, in your spirit, you're fighting for what you want. It doesn't matter if you fail, but it kind of does. It kind of gets like you kind of start to adopt their tone and they're like, you, if you don't have that kind of encouragement or if someone didn't step in and say, no, she actually will, you know, let her at least try. So what if that ends up not panning out? Maybe it'll lead her to the thing that will, you know? And maybe I would have graduated two years earlier instead of during the middle of a recession, (laughs) you know, instead of, you know, having to deal with that. So there's a lot of different ways that we as South Asians can be better to each other as well as to ourselves and just like make sure we're 
being more vocal and calling out the things that have been toxic. And, you know, I don't know if you're watching this Indian matchmaking show. I'm certainly not. I cannot <laughs> see, see myself sitting here and watching it. But I've heard. I've heard what, what people are, like, saying and saying that's, like, the normalization of the patriarchy and all these, like, colorism things that are some completely, like, acceptable in this, this community. And I'm like, I know that. But it also makes us look like, wait, so you knew this and you didn't, you, you haven't tried to correct this? Like, and we're always just under the impression, like, what can we do? These people are these people, you know? But yeah. we're also taught, like, let your elders just be. And then, like, no, I think anyone at any age is still capable of learning and adapting and, and understanding of something that they've always held as, like, a core tenant of their values has is rooted in something problematic like colonialism and patriarchy. You know, like we are still, I think even at like, if at least hopefully if I make it to the age of my father, who's 71, please let me know if I'm saying crazy wild shit that's appropriate now in this time, but won't be in that many years. You know, like I want my grandkids to be able to say like, Bobby, it's fucked up, <laughs> you know? So, well, listen, thanks for all the insight. And honestly, thank you for you know putting us on the map too. I, I really appreciate your time. And I'd love to have you back to talk about some of these topics on an, maybe another episode. Oh, absolutely. No, this is great. Thank you so much. And I think your, you know, Bengalis of New York is super dope. Yeah, yeah, Bengali's in New York, all over the world, uh, it's the Boney Show, uh, can you handle this, representing the boroughs where the bangles live, from the slang we spit, to the gangs we're with, it doesn't matter, we the essence of the Bangladesh, I say, hey, come on, can you handle this, representing the boroughs where the bangles live.